Hello and welcome to Willosophy with Will Anderson Podcast Mike here. Jumping in at the top of the episode to introduce this week's guest, Max Barry. This is actually the second time Max has appeared on the podcast. He is an author from Melbourne. He has written a bunch of novels, including Syrup, Jennifer Government, Company, Machine Man, Lexicon, Providence, and his most recent book, The 22 Murders of Madison May, is available now. Highly recommend you check it out. As I said, Max first appeared on Willosophy back in 2015. That predates my time on the show. Um, and that was one of the first uh, the first few episodes of the podcast that he appeared on. So I highly recommend you go and check out Max's first episode from 2015 uh, after listening to this one. You can also check out a bunch of other of the uh, very early episodes of this show, including episodes with Todd Sampson, uh, Dr. Carl, uh, and, and a lot more. So definitely scroll up in your feed and check them out. If you want to support Willosophy, go to tofop.com slash Willosophy to check out all of our other episodes. You can also go to patreon.com slash Willosophy for as little as a dollar a month. You can get these episodes one day early uh, as well as ad-free. And you can also go to Instagram, uh, Willosophy Pod, to check out all the fantastic artwork done by James Fosdyke, our artist. That's pretty much it from me. I will now hand over to Will and Max for this episode of Willosophy. Enjoy. Hello and welcome to Philosophy with Will Anderson. I'm Will Anderson from the title of the podcast and this is how the show starts. I ask my guests who they are. So who are you? Uh, hi, I'm Max. I am the author of a bunch of novels, uh, most of which have been published. Uh, I also run an AFL analytics website these days. Um, I have a political um, nation building simulation game called Nation States. Uh, and I'm excited about this. Is, this is a new one for me, Will. I am um, the incoming president of a junior netball club. Oh, hang on. All right. Well, I didn't realize, Max Barry, that I was speaking to somebody who held such an esteemed position of power. I didn't realize this was going to suddenly be like, uh, this podcast has turned into the Tim Ferriss podcast now. This is like <laughs> how the leaders of the world respond. Tell me about your recent appointment to that position. Like, how did it come about? How did you decide you were the person to lead that club forward? Was there a board spill? Has there Had there been an external review? You, like what's been happening yeah well look the way the community sport works is that uh, everything's run by volunteers so if you're standing too close to where the kids are training and looking like you're at a loose end uh, you become a coach uh, and that's what happened to me a few years ago my girls were were playing netball which is an amazing sport by the way it's I didn't know a thing about netball before my girls started playing it but um, it's so fantastic. It's um, just for those who don't you know, know much about netball, because maybe some people have not really been exposed to it. Um, it is similar to basketball, but, but everyone has a zone that they play in. Um, so there's not that situation where you have that one amazing kid who always gets past the ball and, and does everything from the back line to the forward line and then scores the goal. Um, they each have to be awesome in their own little areas. Um, so it was, yeah, I, I, I've just become really interested in the sport. Um, I, I started coaching this uh, girls team when they were seven and eight year old girls um, and basically standing in one spot calling for the ball with their hands up and you have to try to <laughs> teach them to move around a little bit. And, um, and it's just, yeah, it's so adorable. My older daughter, who's now 15, went through from when she was a little tacker um, and I saw how it helped her in terms of um, 
her confidence, um, her athleticism, a whole bunch of things. Uh, so yeah, I, I became the coach. Um, I, I, um, I, 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 it sort of opened up this, um, this, a lot of feminist issues for me um, because like I'd always considered myself kind of a feminist guy, like a, a fairly woke guy as far as these things go. Um, but I've been going through a series of discoveries um, as I age, uh, and especially as the father of two girls, um, to, uh, to realize that I actually wasn't nearly enough of a feminist before, um, because there is still uh, so much crap that girls and women um, put up with every day. Uh, so yeah, it's, um, I sort of got interested in um, pushing the cause of the netball club a little bit. So where we operate um, in inner city Melbourne, there is uh, footy ovals and cricket ovals uh, and soccer fields and all of this stuff um, for uh, uh, sports that are traditionally male. Uh, not nowadays, of course. Nowadays, girls are welcome to all these different sorts of sports. But, but back in the day when all of the green space was being allocated for these areas, uh, no one cared about the girls' most popular sport, netball. Um, so there's no space being given to it. And the situation now is that we've got a club with 165 registered netballers and cannot get a single netball hoop anywhere in, in the suburb. There's nowhere to practice and nowhere to play. I mean, uh, it's so even I started like, writing letters. It's, not, it's even like you yeah. don't even need that much space. Like netball That's of right. all the sports. Funny it's you not should like say. You're not asking for an entire oval. You can just like tuck it away in yeah. the corner. 33 meters squared per player will i've run the stats on this it is the most space efficient sport in the world uh if you were building out a suburb today uh the inner city and you were looking okay what, what sort of sporting facilities should we provide the no-brainer is netball because it's the number one sport for half the population and it's the most space efficient i mean and even in a uh, cost efficient way you're not talking about like backboards and things that you need to maintain in the sense that if you have a basketball court you're literally talking about a pole with a hoop at each end, basically. Yeah, yeah, that's that, that's all we would like. Um, <laughs> a court would be nice too. Um, I mean, some but, space uh, in between, absolutely. Some lines so people know yeah. which zones they're in. But it's not a lot to ask, is yeah. my point. There's not a lot of high overheads for constructing a netball no. court. No, you wouldn't think so. Um, so yeah, I kind of got into advocacy for this a little bit um, because it was amazing to me that this situation exists here and exists in inner city places in particular all over the shop. Um, so yeah, and um, got a bit of media um, attention for the situation. Um, and then again, it's that situation where the people who are currently working their butts off for no reward um, see someone who's um, maybe can help the cause. And so I've been sucked into it that way. Okay, so there were so many things to unpick in this uh, first answer, which I love. Uh, so firstly, netball. Love it. Played a lot of netball when I was at high school because my sister played netball, but also because my mother played in a, like what they used to call, very un-PC, in uh, the Salem Districts area, the Married Women's Netball League, which was essentially, you know, stay-at-home mums who went out for their exercise once or twice a week and played netball together. And of course, because of the nature of being a mum, it's an unpredictable thing. So sometimes they would be short a player or two. And my mother, uh, who had realised that me occasionally having a day off school was probably as productive for me and everybody else in my class as me going to school, uh, <laughs> just to give the teachers and the other students a break as much as anything, would get me to fill in for her married women's netball team. And then I would get the rest of the day off and we would go to muffin break and have a cappuccino. 
So the, they were good times, good memories. But I always remember the essential philosophy at the heart of netball, which is here if you need. That's what you're meant to call out in netball. It's not like give it to me. It's here if you need. And I think if any sport is teaching you a life philosophy that would make the world a better place, here if you need is that philosophy. Yeah, yeah, 100%. Yeah, yeah. You you actually had um, a lovely introduction to netball, um, whereas I, I kind of completely whiffed on my introduction to netball. Uh, this was before I became like um, a president, um, uh, but the um one of the older teams was was looking for a fill-in and i was like coaching the young girls but i'd never played the sport myself and and didn't know anything about it and thought i'd better actually like have a go at this sport myself so i can know a bit better i like, understand the sport a bit better to teach these girls so i played my first game for this um grown-ups fill-in team filled in for this grown-ups team um and it was pretty competitive i was uh mixed so i was playing on this other dude and um you know, I didn't know a whole lot about what I was doing, um, which is the problem when you get blokes in playing mixed netball who don't know what they're doing because they sort of don't uh, move in predictable ways. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, there's a lot of potential for collision. So I did tangle with this guy a few times um, and he kept falling down and like crying out. And I didn't think I'd knocked him down that that hard. Um, and, you know, I wasn't trying to do anything um, rough. <laughs> But he kept falling over. And I thought, this guy's staging, right? He's just, he's trying, he's playing to the umpires. And so I, I think that was the case. Um, anyway, so it was a very competitive game. Um, but then the next game I played, I was filling in um, and I was uh, goal attack. Um, and there was a woman who was goal defense. And in about the first eight seconds, I somehow managed to elbow her right in the mouth. And this is the, what you do when you're a bloke who has no control over his, his limbs sort of flying in all directions. Um, and I felt so bad about that. But I also, in the back of my head, I wasn't completely sure that it wasn't the same situation as the first game where they were putting it on a bit. Um, so I, I feel like I was not really abjectly apologetic enough uh, at the time for basically elbowing this poor woman in the mouth. Yeah, you're uh, a thug. So, That's where you are. You're not woke yeah, at all. You're yeah. an absolute thug. And they've now elected I, you I president like, of yeah. this thug netball club. That's right. Yeah. I feel like I could have started my netballing career better, but you know, we learn well. It's all a learning experience. Okay. So learning is the next thing I wanted to ask you about, because when your daughters become enthusiastic about this sport, but you don't have any background in the sport, there's a really delightfully manipulative, like Google or Amazon. I think it's Google ad on TV at the moment with a, like a, yeah, so someone who's not from the Australian football culture comes to Australia, his daughter wants to play, and it's constantly him sort of Googling bits about the game to learn how to, you know, play the game. It's a very emotionally manipulative, effective advertisement. I will say that I see a yeah. lot during the football, and each time I yeah. go... It is beautiful, oh, I mean, I teared yeah. up. Yeah, <laughs> like, this is a real nice story about a dad just doing his best to try to identify with his daughter. I hope there's not some multinational corporation manipulating my emotions behind this. So... Right. Um, but is that what the experience is like? How do you throw yourself into understanding netball, particularly when you're going to become a coach of it? Yeah, I mean, I do watch a lot of um, stuff on the internet and YouTube videos. I mean, I, I still don't know nearly enough about netball as I should as a like fourth year coach uh, of the sport. Um, but yeah, I mean, especially at the younger years, it's it's you know you're not really teaching them skills. I mean, you are, but you're, you're mainly trying to get them enthusiastic and moving and working together and having fun. Um, because if they're enjoying what they're doing, then that's like half the job right there. Um, so, yeah, I think a lot of it for me was about 
relating to, to young kids more than learning about the sport itself, like figuring out how you deal with um, a group of kids where, you know, sometimes there's a kid who just doesn't feel like doing anything that day. Um, so they want to sit down on the ground and, and not participate. So, you know, if you're not prepared for that, it's kind of like, oh, okay, uh, what do I do with this child that's sitting in the middle of the court and won't, won't stand up? Um, so there's a fair bit of that. Um, you know, I think I gained a fair bit of respect for for teachers and, and how they deal with sort of that age group all the time because, yeah, it's harder than it looks. I, that, and that is what's interesting to me because my brother and my sister, both of whom you know, and uh, they both coach. You know, my, my sister coaches like, you know, her kids' basketball teams and my brother has coached you know, his kids' football teams. And like, you know, they are they have their own children, so they, I guess they know how to, you know, engage children. But the thing that constantly occurs to me is, Yes, you know how to engage with your own children, but then suddenly you have a whole bunch of strangers' children that you're also meant to know how to motivate and bring together and operate with. How challenging is that? Yeah, look, I found I find it really um, rewarding to to meet these kids and yeah, figure out that they've all got their weird little personality quirks and they're all adorable in their own way. Like there's no kid that I've really thought, you know, oh, bloody hell, <laughs> how, do I, how do I deal with? We've got to trade this kid. Yeah, Michelle. We've got to get their parents yeah, a job in a right. different district. We've got to get this kid out. Yeah. No, I've never had that. Um, I did discover when I became a coach and took over from the, the coach who was um, looking after that group of kids that, that my kid was probably one of the biggest troublemakers. Right. So, you know, my perspective <laughs> flipped around a hundred percent from, you know, are these coaches doing the right thing for my kid through to, Hey, my kid is really disrupting yeah. this team. I need to do something about that. So, so that was a, a learning experience. And how is that coaching um, no. your own kids? Because that's another thing as well. Like I had my dad coach me at various different levels. It's a, uh, I think he was one of those people who probably erred on the side of being harder on me than the other kids, you know, to make sure there wasn't favoritism. What are you like as a coach? Uh, look, I, I think I, I try to treat her like just one of the kids. Um, it's a bit hard when, you know, she jumps on my back and, right. and calls me dad in the middle of a session. So it's, the line is not, you know, all that firm between parent and coach. But yeah, yeah. I do feel like maybe next year she'll go to a different coach because um, yeah, she's quite good at netball, I think. So um, we've sort of reached the limit of what I can do uh, with her. But yeah, no, it is a joy because when you take the same group of kids from seven, eight-year-olds, um, they're now 10-year-olds, 11-year-olds, uh, and um, they're learning so quickly and they're getting better at what they're doing. So it's really great to see that improvement um, across a whole range of levels in the same group of kids. It must be also for the kids. Like, I think when you're a kid, there's those moments in your life where you realize that your parents don't have that much more to teach you in that area. You know, in some areas, they're still very much in charge, but in other areas, you're like, the student has surpassed the teacher now. I'm off to, you know, kind of be on my own path. And I think as, as kids, they must be very important moments. Yeah, yeah. I think it's um, it's important as a parent too to, to kind of celebrate those moments where the kid, you know, catches you out in a mistake or something. And um, it's, you know, that's fantastic. And, and you've probably got this natural defensiveness as a parent to be like, no, 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 I'm in charge. Yeah. You know, I, I'm still right. I'm get them on a technicality yeah. or something because you can out argue them if you really want to. Yeah. Um, but no, it's, it's a fantastic moment to be able to, to give that to the kid and make them feel like, you know, hopefully there's still respect that dad's right most of the time, but no, I, you know, I, I had a win on this one. I stopped calling myself a feminist. Um, you know, I used to make a big deal about the fact of saying I'm a feminist and then I stopped calling myself a feminist because 
I think like you, the more that I, you know, really tried to understand what feminism was, the more that I felt like there were enough holes in, you know, the way that I had lived my life or just the way that I had seen the world that, you know, it, I, I think I thought, you know, wait for other people to call you it if they want to call you it. But you just, you know, there's a few things here that you probably should, you know, address if you want to be going around, you know, wearing a T-shirt. This is this is what a feminist looks like. So for you, what were those challenging moments that you identified? Yeah, I think um, when I was younger, so at, at uni, I got a job uh, as a salesperson, basically for HP, big tech company. Um, and I was working in a pretty high powered sales team where I was the junior guy, but everyone else was a 40 plus year old, um, pretty successful person earning a lot of money. Um, and everyone in that sales team, um, including the bosses was male, except for one salesperson. Um, and uh, so back then, I don't think this happens so much anymore, but back then, if you were the bloke uh, and you were there with a group and it was just all other blokes, um, you would hear what they were saying about the women. Um, and it was pretty clear, you know, they'd be joking around and they'd be talking about her in ways that were that were disrespectful um, and that ways that were, you know, that were sexually charged. And, you know, I, I'm not sure if those sort of conversations, people feel like brave enough, um, brave is the wrong word, but brazen enough to, um, to talk like that in front of a group of strangers at the time. Um, but yeah, I was, I was like kind of quietly appalled at, at how women seemed to be viewed at the time. Um, now I didn't, I didn't speak up at the time, uh, cause I felt like, you know, I was the 23 year old kid and you know, what do I know? And, um, and I look back at that and I think, gee, I probably would have made a big impact if I had said something because there's not much more terrifying to a 45 year old man than the idea of a 23 year old, um, kid who thinks he's out of touch. Uh, so I think I could have, you know, just done some, I could have made some more, some more of, of a fuss about yeah, that. We're, we're lucky um, as mid forties guys, that 23 year olds don't understand how much power they actually have over us. <laughs> how quickly <laughs> that's they bring true. us to water. You're right. Because you're trying to fit in, in that situation. And this is a good example because like when I look back on, you know, my life, it is those moments that I think of the most, the moments where you weren't the person saying any of the things, but you certainly weren't the person putting up your hand to say, hey, maybe we shouldn't be saying these things, or maybe yeah, this is a really yeah, disrespectful or terrible or illegal way to be having a conversation in an office place, you know, um, even if you knew that. Sometimes I didn't know it, you know, and then when I learned it, I'm yep. not sure that I still would have had necessarily the courage that I would hope I would have today in the same situation but yeah okay so that's very interesting max barry's back on the podcast by the way i should mention that this is not your first episode here this is uh, your second philosophy but you were back on the show way back in the olden days before like before everything basically <laughs> like this yeah i was like, i was on this podcast before i understood what a podcast was yeah like i knew technically that it involved recording someone and then creating an audio file that people could listen to on their computers but i didn't understand why anyone would want to do that so i so now i kind of get it okay you know it's a radio you go for a run you listen to the podcast you've got your iphone whatever um but no it was it was very weird so i was you know i was all pleased that you were doing it and i was sure it was going to work out fine for you but yeah i didn't kind of get it as a concept uh well whereas now i do now i listen to the podcast it's very nice to have you back and i appreciate it but it feels like not only are you back for this show but it feels like 
the first time all over again. So I'm going to treat it as if it is a first episode and we'll explain some backstory for those people who don't know. Max and I have known each other for oh, 35 years um, and uh, it's uh, we met at high school. Um, we went to high school together. We were in a theatre sports team together that I've talked about a lot on some of my other podcasts, if people follow those, <laughs> over the top. Uh, did an entire episode <laughs> about that podcast uh, called Monolithic Epicureanism, if people want to go and check that out on the uh, on the Topop stream. It is up there somewhere. But uh, Max and I, yes, have known each other for a very long time. You are a fabulous author, and I think you were the first person that I really knew that was pursuing a dream of you know, working in entertainment. We both went to a country, you know, high school together. It was a private country high school, but it was a country high school still. Um, and, you know, at, at, at high school careers day, they weren't doing a lot of saying, hey, here's what you should do with the rest of your life. You should be like a, a an international author or you should be like a stand-up comedian. These weren't necessarily options that were explained to us, despite the fact that there were so many high school curriculum programs where we got to do theatre or drama or writing or yeah, all these things. So they were preparing us for us. They, then they just went, hey, all this training you've done, uh, that is not an option anymore. How would you like to be an accountant? So let's go back to, because you've just, um, your most recent book, The 22 Murders of Madison May, did I get that right? Um, you did, yes. Uh, I read it a, a month ago or so when I got sent a copy. Is it out yet? Is it out in shops now? Can people? Uh, it is out in Australia in I think about two weeks. Okay, so it's I should say yeah, like twenty. Actually, no, it's about it's about now. Yeah, yeah. Okay. if you're listening to it, it'll be out. Right, so it's fantastic. Could not recommend it more. I think honestly, one of the oh, the best books that you have ever written, and you've written a whole bunch of thank great you. books. But I can't remember uh, the last time that I read a book in full from start to finish. Like so often these days, I read a bit of something, I get distracted, I start reading something else, I have to read something for the show. But the story is just super engaging, very fun, like, you know, got some really, you know, plays with some really great, you know, time travel themes. I won't go into it too much more that, than that, um, that I absolutely love. Yeah, really fantastic work. Was it a, was that a pandemic uh, book did you like write that during lockdown or was it something that you had already written previous to that oh well look thank you so much for that first of all that's that's totally amazing to hear um yeah i i was working on a few different books at once so my previous novel actually no i've, I've had a novel i had a novel published last year but before that it was basically a five-year gap since um lexicon which was my previous book and i had a, um, a bit of trouble finding anything that really grabbed me after Lexicon. So I wound up working on four different books at once, um, all of which I finished around the same time. So suddenly I have a bunch of stuff coming out. Um, but yeah, it was the basic concept of it is kind of like a what if story. Um, I feel like um, I'm at the point now where I can see how my life is basically, I mean, nothing's set, but my life is basically set, right? Like tomorrow I could throw everything in and go and become a, a docs worker or whatever, but you know, I'm not going to do that. I'm, I'm going to keep doing what I'm doing. I have a family now. Um, and, you know, this is all quite different to when we were in high school and the world was full of possibility and maybe we would become this thing and maybe we would become this completely different thing. Uh, so, yeah, you start to think a little bit about how you got to where you are and how much of it is because of the decisions that you made and how much is because of random chance or 
factors beyond your control or, or maybe a decision that you made that seemed like it was kind of irrelevant, a decision to, to go along and watch some show or, or to speak to some person that you didn't think mattered at all, but it turned out to have a big influence on the direction of your life thereafter. So I was thinking a lot about that sort of story um, and how to, how to tell it. I try, the way I work is I usually write about 12 different chapter ones into an idea. And then the one that finally starts to click and, and feel like it's, it's working as a story is the one that I take. And then the other 11 get shut down. Um, and so, yeah, I, I wound up with a, a chapter where I approached it. Um, it's almost, uh, almost a horror novel uh, opening where there's a, a woman who's a, a real estate agent. She's showing a house and, that she meets the buyer who seems to know a lot about her and he tells her that um, he's in love with her, even though he's never met her before. He seems to know things about her. And it suddenly brought together a few themes that were um, important to me um, and that gave me a, a vessel to, to talk about them, which was this idea of, of um, a dude, a young dude who's has an idea of love that's very much on his terms, where he doesn't really see the object of his affection as a real person. It's more like this ideal in his head. Um, and when she doesn't meet that ideal, he feels like the problem is her rather than his own vision of her. Um, so it was, yeah, it was a chance to sort of run a story through some interesting themes um, uh, that I've been thinking about for a while. And once I got that first chapter out, the rest of it came out pretty quick. Yeah, you could tell. It was, it, the story, I mean, I know it doesn't. It's the worst thing that like when people, you know, when sometimes when you make something look easy, that can be confused with the actual thing being easy. But it, yep. the story is easy. You know, the story is one of those things where you start to go, no, this is, it unfolds in a really interesting, not necessarily predictable at all, particularly when you've like on Main Street called the book, you know, like the, I love even just the statement because I was like well it can't just be this like clearly the book's called this he's telling you that it's one thing but he wouldn't be telling you that it's all the thing that it is anyway I don't want to give away the right. the book itself yes, yeah. because I think that's you know interesting it's and exciting for people to actually read but the themes that are in the book I think are some things I'd love to explore a little bit more so firstly let's talk about that idea of the yes the the relationship at the heart of it which is this guy who's fallen in love with an ideal and then judges this person for not being the ideal that this that has only been constructed in the mind of this guy in the first place such a thing that we identify with younger people and yet you have been in a you know romantic relationship with the you know with your partner since you were a young person so how how did you get in that mindset? Because when I was reading it, I was like, this is funny because I can recognize this sort of, you know, ridiculous, romantic idealization of somebody. But Max has literally been married to, you know, his partner since they were kids. Like, was it something that you recognize in other people, something that you recognize in yourself, something you wanted to write about because it's not your experience at all? Like, where did that come from? Yeah, now that's a great question because yeah, I did get married at 19, um, which seems weirder and weirder the older I get. At the time, it didn't feel very weird at all because I um, had met a girl and I actually I'd known her for quite a few years and I was in love with her and it seemed pretty self-evident that we were going to get married at some point. So why not do it now? Um, so we are 28 years in at this point. Um, and yeah, it's certainly a different relationship now than it was back then. Um, you know, that's, that's pretty inevitable. 
uh, it's is um, yeah, uh, it becomes less about that crazy romantic love, and it becomes a lot more practical as you get older. Uh, so yeah, so when I was thinking about you know my own attitudes, a lot of that was before Jen. So yeah, I guess it would have been like teenage years for me, but still. Um, you know, there was, there was, that's a time when you're sort of in your late teens where romantic thoughts are really intense. Like it's what you think about a lot of the time. Um, you know, how am I going to meet with a girl, get with a girl? You know, what is, how is this going to work? And, um, so yeah, I, I do feel like I was, I still had a pretty big well of, of material to draw back on, um, from, yeah, from the teenage years. Uh, so yeah, it's, uh, I mean, it's funny. I hadn't really thought about like the, the relationship with Jed in the context of, of this book. Um, uh, yeah, but I, I do feel even in the early days of, of when Jen and I were together, um, I look back on the ways that we acted and, you know, we, I think we were probably doing better than most teen couples at the time. Um, but still, you know, we were, we were a stupid teen couple doing stupid teen things. So yeah, there's, there's plenty of material. And so then the idea of that our, at our age, the realization that, you know, while you haven't ruled out everything else that might come in the rest of your life, that you have ruled out some of it. And some of your story is already told regardless. You know, like, I mean, you've done things. You know, you've you've published books, you've had children, you've like lived a life. So regardless of what happens from now, those years are gone. They are set in stone. And then this idea of, you know, what could have been, what the possibilities are, like why... Well, I guess just where are you at in your life with that? Are you comfortable with the decisions that you made? Did this come from some sort of you know midlife crisis style longing for having made different decisions? Do you you know like where are you at with that? Yeah, no, I, there's there's no regret or wishing I'd made different decisions. And I think one of the interesting things is that almost no one has that like regret about mistakes. You know, that we we tend to all feel like no matter where we are in life, no matter how things have gone, we all think like, no, I wouldn't change a thing, you know, because if maybe terrible things have happened. Um, and I've had, you know, friends who have had terrible things happen in their lives, including some very good friends um, who lost a child um, to brain cancer, which is just, you know, one of the worst things you could ever imagine happening. Uh, and it was, you know, such a traumatic experience. Um, and people get through that um, and they, they the experience is as terrible as it is it's also something that forms such a huge part of who they become that it's impossible to imagine any other way um so yeah i feel like um you know as humans we don't really regret our choices very much um and uh yeah no i certainly feel like i've been blessed in in a few different ways i mean i talked on the podcast before about how um stupidly beneficial it is to have someone in your life who's just around all the time and also really supportive all the time um and as an artist especially just that that being able to show your stuff to someone who um you know is kind of unfailingly positive about it even if you suspect that maybe you know they didn't love it as much as the other thing you did it's still just you know it's a really important thing um and maybe, you know, it, it says something about how shallow I am as, as a person that just that, you know, instant feedback um, is important to me. But, um, but it is important. Um, and I feel like as a novelist, you need to be a little bit deluded um, to get through a first draft just because of the sheer size of the, the task. So if you've got someone there who you can show it to and they'll be like, yeah, this is good. Instead of reacting like a normal person would, which is like, 
you know, this has actually got a few problems and here they are, A, B, C, D. You know, that, that's how a normal person would react to a first draft because first drafts are uniformly terrible. Uh, that's just the way it is. Uh, so yeah, being able to have that delusion um, fueled by this loved one who will tell you, no, actually what you're doing is amazing. Just keep doing that. Um, it helps you get through that first draft and then you actually have a novel that you can then rewrite and, and go back and look at with a, a bit more of an unvarnished gaze. So first drafts, I think there'd be some people who are very interested in this because even if they're not professional writers, they might be people who are, you know, everybody might think they have like one great novel in them or one great life story in them, even if it's just for you, even if it's just for you to write and put in your drawer and nobody else ever gets to see it. Are you a subscriber to the idea of you talked before about writing first chapters and then seeing which one grabs you like then when you actually sit down to write something is there a uniform process there uh yeah i do i do feel like i have to discover how to write a novel all over again with each new book that i start there's there's there isn't a whole lot that i've taken from just writing in general that you know rules or processes that i apply to every book and part of that is because I just really enjoy starting new projects. I've never written a sequel. I probably never will. I just really like the idea of hopping into some new creative project that could go in any direction. Um, so, yeah, I think the, the main thing for people uh, is to, um, to do what makes you happy. To, because a novel, as I said, is, is such a huge thing. You've got to enjoy that journey. Uh, so it has, to be, it has to be about the journey more than the destination, I feel. Um, I, I have a very good friend who who sent me some um, pages that she, you know, she sent me some pages out of the blue and she's like, you know, I've decided to write a novel. What do you think? Um, so she started working on it. It was about three hours of work and she'd sent me her, you know, her five pages and said, you know, do you think this could be a book? Um, and, you know, the answer that you should provide, of course, in that situation is always, yes, it's brilliant. Um, keep going. Fantastic. Because that's what you need to tell an artist in the early stages because any kind of realistic feedback um, will knock them out, you know, no matter who they are. No, that's so, a, I will um, say, but, I, I feel like I'm the exception to that rule. I, I like people to tell me that something is shit and I'll be like, I'll fucking prove you wrong. And often if they really? won't tell me that it's shit, I just invent in my mind, I won't ask them and just invent in my mind that they think it's shit. And then I'm like, I'll fucking show you person that I never gave a chance to actually have a response to this. Wow, that is unfathomable to me. I can't <laughs> understand how you could... Well, I mean, I've got that voice in my head already. I don't need someone else to tell me it's shit because they're, you know, that's that's coming out of my brain already. Yeah, I, I, I think I, I have that not. in my brain, but I like to know that there's somebody else who agrees with my brain. I feel like, okay, <laughs> right. now we have a quorum. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, that's amazing. I, I, that's, that's a very different process that I would choose. Uh, so, yeah, but, you know, the thing with a novel is, you know, there are really no rules for, you know, you've got to have this, this and this in a novel to make it work. There's been a ton of amazing, great novels that um, that break all the rules. That they they are great stories because they are great stories. And um, so, yeah, anything can be a great book. Um, so there's no real. You can't look at something after three hours of work and say, yeah, this is going to be a great story. Um, in my opinion, um, you just need to to commit to that process and um, write whatever makes you happy. And if you're enjoying it and having fun as you go, then you're on the right track. Okay, so. The idea of you don't regret any choices that you have made, but is there choices that you didn't make that you regret? Like, is there some opportunity that you had, some time that you could have done something that it either did not work out or you chose not to do it and you look back and go, fuck, I wish I'd had a go at that? 
Yeah. Um, I know I considered moving to the US earlier in my career um, because I had been sort of ridiculously undeservedly successful with my first, or not my first book, but but a couple of books in, in early in my career. So the opportunity did come up to, to move to the, the States um, and maybe do some screenwriting and or, or whatever and move into that industry. Um, so I don't regret it now. I feel like you know, yeah. the time has shown that it's, <laughs> yeah. it's probably a good idea to be right here in Australia where we are. Yeah. Um, but yeah, for quite a while, I used to think, hmm, it, you know, it would have been interesting to see how that might have gone if I'd really committed to it. Um, you know, I didn't have kids at the time, so it would have been something that we could have done and maybe tried for five or 10 years. Uh, so, uh, and it seemed pretty cool, you know, yeah. you know, going and living over in the States. Like, you know, obviously you did it. So you sort of had that experience. It was cool. But um, I also agree with you that like with what's happened in the last 24 months or so, like I still had two years left on my US work visa. And as soon as, you know, there was a worldwide global pandemic, because my plan when I lived in America was literally the minute I got a cough, get on a plane to Australia. Like don't trust any medical thing that you have to get done with the American medical system. So I think in these times, it does feel very safe to be in Australia. So tell me about your relationship with Melbourne and with Australia, because those things, did they change in the last 18 months? Uh, yeah, so I um, I did live in the US very briefly. Um, when my first novel was published, they uh, the publisher was going to bring me out for a book tour. And I thought, well, someone else is paying for the plane ticket. So this is a great opportunity to actually like live in New York for a little while. How, how cool would that be? Um, and it was, it was pretty cool. Um, although it did make me appreciate the things back home um, that I took for granted, like... Um, flats that were uh, not the size of a shoebox uh, and not with exposed wiring. I, I still can't believe that I didn't burn to death in that first um, apartment I stayed in in New York. Um, uh, so yeah, it was, um, yeah, and I started to miss home as well. And like, even just the little things, even just the, um, the silly things like the accents. Uh, we had lived in New York for maybe five months and then there was something on TV where Australians were being interviewed for some reason and it just felt so refreshing just the voices <laughs> in my ear it was like oh wow listen to that so yeah we did miss that a little bit um yeah it's uh I mean it's hard to define what really brings you home um to a place but Melbourne has been the place where we've lived for a long time now I've actually lived in the same house for about uh coming up on 20 years now uh so it's yeah it's very much ingrained in my person at the moment um, this place and I can't see us going anywhere else probably not out of Victoria anyway I may move to the country at some point which I never thought I'd do because I was scarred from being a teenager in in country Victoria uh, but yeah it's, it's starting to feel more appealing now uh, so Melbourne obviously went through you know the worst of the challenges that COVID you know offered in Australia you know four lockdowns now you're somebody who works from home anyway like, did you feel like, you know, the life that you had lived up until that point, you know, the career that you'd chosen was helpful for you in negotiating the lockdown in Melbourne? Yeah, that was interesting. So obviously I had a pretty easy lockdown in the sense that I was already locked down as part of my job. I, it's not a huge difference for me in, in terms of what I do from day to day. The main difference was that uh, my family was in the house with me and that was pretty cool. So I could have lunch with them. Um, I was lucky to actually live in a house, you know, a house with a postage stamp size backyard, but nevertheless, an, an actual house. Um, my kids were 
not so old that they were trying to navigate year 12 during a pandemic year, um, but not so young that they required constant supervision, um, which I know was really tough for, for some of my friends with young kids. So yeah, it was it was pretty easy um, in that regard. Like I, I quite enjoyed all that. I um, also noticed people discovering the benefits of working from home. Like you don't have that stupid commute uh, like you get so I've been doing this for a long time. So I've gotten really used to the idea of having total control over my day. And I get to decide how I spend every minute. And if I had to go and have a meeting somewhere, I would spend the entire drive to that meeting just feeling frustrated at, you know, look how stupid this is. I'm sitting in a car doing nothing on the way to, to this meeting. So I think people kind of um, got exposed to a little bit of the benefits that I'd been enjoying for a while. Uh, and they they sort of enjoyed that. Um, the other side of it was, and I, I want to say this in the right way that doesn't seem incredibly disrespectful um, to people who, who struggled with the pandemic, because they, there were obviously a lot of people who um, lost their jobs, who were under stress, um, and who had, um, who had real mental issues with dealing with being at home all the time. Um, but, you know, some of that I would hear it and I'd be like, huh, well, I, I thought that was about being a novelist that you, you started to feel that way. But maybe it's maybe it's just working from home gets you really inside your head all the time when you don't talk to the other humans. So, yeah, maybe some of what I thought about when I'm working on a book and I've, I've started to question the nature of reality and, you know, what am I doing and, and what does it all mean? Maybe some of that is actually just the result of being stuck in the same place with a keyboard and a screen in front of you and not from being um, a genius novelist after all. So what I am interested in is I think that you are doing a lot of different things. Do you think that that, you know, you talked about, you know, nation states, you talked about like the football statistics, like, you know, even the netball presidency, they are very different areas. That's what, you know, they're not necessarily things where you go like, I mean, I do stand up and I, have a podcast then you know i have a tv show you can see the connection between those things and those worlds whereas yours are actually a little bit you know they're connected by you but there's no other real connection between those things do you think that is intentional that you have chosen it's a bit like that with your novels as well when you talk about not doing sequels it feels to me like you're like well i'm done with this world for a while i'm going to go off and play in this world yeah a hundred percent um i i often will get drawn into some other um, sphere as as an escape from what I'm doing. So um, the challenge actually has been for me, and I think this is different to what to what you have done. I've heard you talk about this subject in the past, and um, my challenge has always been to stop turning my hobbies into jobs mm. because I I get drawn into something like football, for example, yeah. and. The beauty of football for me is that I can go and enjoy football, and I don't have to think about it if I don't want to. I can you know, go and, and watch my team play and I can care about it. But, but then if it's never a job for me, it's never stressful because I can just shut it off and it has no relevance to the rest of my life. Uh, but what I tend to do um, when I get into something is then I start to you know, turn it into a project. So for football, it was this squiggle website where um, the, the non-arty part of me is the, the programmer side where I like to build websites and write code and and write bots and um, just play around with sort of more mechanical things like that. So I, I got into developing this um, this analytics uh, website, um, partly as I think a, a way to explore why my football team had been so terrible for so many years and seemed to be showing no signs of getting any better. 
Um, as it turned out, they you know they, they, they managed better. to Spoilers. break the cycle. <laughs> Spoilers, they, they got spoiler alert, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> they did get they they got ridiculously good. Um, so that was weird too. But yeah, so I I developed this just because you know I like to to make things, uh, and that was an area for me to go have a bit of fun uh, in something new. But then, yeah, what happens is I end up with the website and a bunch of people who are, it's now a platform for people who model football um, to go and um, put their own predictions on it and their own analysis on it. Um, but then, yeah, it's uh, the problem for me is then it starts to become a thing where people care about what I do. And there are people with expectations that, you know, I have to make sure I'm keeping them happy. So um I think after a while I start to look for a new hobby from my existing hobby that's become a job <laughs> and then and then something else comes along. So yeah, I'm not really sure how I deal with that but 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 that's yeah, that's what's happening. Well, your love of coding versus your love of, you know, I mean the uh, so some people would see my initial like uh response to that is that like there's different parts of your brain for coding and for you know sort of your art. Um, is that the case? Are you working both sort of, sort of sides of your brain or is it like actually an extension of the same process? I think it's mainly separate. Uh, but yeah, occasionally I do feel there's a bit of overlap um, in terms of, in both cases, whether it's writing code or creating um, a world building out a novel, I'm looking for situations with um, interesting dynamics i should try to find a good way to explain this but the a great novel for me has got a situation that uh compels ordinary people to do interesting things so it's not necessarily the fact that you've got some really unusual character um that makes the story interesting it's the fact that you have quite a relatable ordinary person but the situation they're in demands they make extraordinary choices or or illuminating choices. So um, I tend to take a bit of a systems-based approach to looking at a situation. And I do that in, in programming and, and in novel building as well, where it's um, it's less, you kind of start to view things as agents uh, that are being driven by dynamic forces uh, and how those forces will interact. Um, so it's quite an analytical approach, I guess, to um, to a creative art. Um, and in I guess in the end too, it's that's not the most important part of it because a novel will live and die by whether you believe in the characters end of the day, a story has got to have a plot. It's got to move. It's got to change. And so that's the sort of um, programming. Did you ever get approached to write, um, you know, sort of big fantasy kind of video games. I can imagine that being something that you would be incredibly good at, like being able to build a world full of like compelling characters. I'd be surprised if at some stage somebody hasn't tapped you on the shoulder and said, do you want to come and write? you know, Call of Duty 6 or whatever. That, that's not a good example, but I don't know video games enough to know what the right... Final Fantasy 8 or whatever. <laughs> like, is that something yeah. that you've been approached for? Um, I've... Not really, no. I, I've done... Um, I know people who work in that industry um, and I, I see what they do. It's... Yeah, it's, it's kind of interesting because video games do have um, a really interesting form of storytelling where the player has agency. So you as, as the story writer have to create this framework um, but then you have to leave enough room for the player to then um, develop this push the story forward themselves so um, yeah there are some some games with amazing storytelling um, but I also find like for me one of the greatest games the greatest stories in games uh, was in a game called Portal where it feels like there's no story at all it's really just a puzzle game 
But as you're, you're in this facility and you're trying to solve these um, physics-based puzzles, you're being talked to by this artificial intelligence um, that has a very warped um, sense of um, basically discovering the nature of this AI's personality as you go through. And it's funny um, and it's creepy and it's, um, you get to find out more and more that this AI is not really telling you the truth about things as you go. Um, and for me, that was just such a wonderful journey into uh, an artificial mind that, you know, that, that's a great story for me, even though it wasn't, you know, this character is leading a faction to overthrow the, the kingdom of whatever. Um, it, you know, it's, uh, it's, it's the kind of story that really works for me because you are getting to understand a personality uh, and it's, uh, there's some twists along the way that make you reevaluate what you thought you knew before. Uh, I can't remember if I asked you last time if you have a life philosophy. I can't remember if I'd even like settled on that as one of the questions when we first did this as uh, part of the process. I know that I went back and had a look at some of the earlier episodes a while ago and was like, oh, wow, all the things I assumed had been there from the start, a lot of them weren't there at the start. So I'm guessing I asked if you had a life philosophy, but if, um, uh, if I did not, uh, can you answer me that question? And if I did, can you tell me, has there been any change in your life philosophy since we last spoke? Yeah, well, I'm not sure if you asked me that either, because I was trying to think before I did this podcast, should I go back and listen to what I said the first time or, or should I not? And I figured that, first of all, not anyone who's listening to this wouldn't have listened to the first one. Like, I don't think there's anyone who's like looking at part two, Max Barry and thinking, I better go back and listen to part one. I might, I might miss out on some important plot developments if I don't do that. Uh, and yeah, you know, I tend to overthink things a little bit as well. So I didn't want to completely overthink this podcast more than I already have. Um, the first time I did it, I, I was, you know, as I said, I didn't know anything about it. Whereas this time I am a podcast listener myself. I listen to a lot of um, your material. So I've had time to think about all of these questions that I knew were coming and I, I was trying not to overthink it. But um, so, yeah, I'm not sure what I answered the first time. Uh, I think that um, my philosophy at the moment um, you know, nothing very groundbreaking, but uh, I think don't be a dick is, is a pretty good one. Um, I think we have a lot of opportunities in life to be a dick and <laughs> sometimes we can't resist it <laughs> in big ways or small ways. I mean, um, sometimes society but... is set up to encourage us to be dicks. It is the exactly, exactly right. of, you know, the survival of the dickiest. Yes. Yeah, very much so. Uh, so I think um, one thing that comes more or less naturally as you get older is this understanding of how we are not the the heroes of um, one particular story but we are all um, minor characters in a very very big story and uh, so you develop a well hopefully you develop an empathy towards the other minor characters in the story um, and you start to understand how um, you know the bad people are not necessarily bad people um, they're they are good people being dicks and sometimes you are a good person being a dick so it's um yeah it's i think if we can all just you know not be dicks as much as we can resist the temptation to do so um then we're doing okay the idea of us being part of a bigger story is something that i think we've lost a lot of touch with now obviously sometimes that was a connection that was made through tribalism, the very nature of our existence. Like sometimes it was through religions, which were another type of tribalism. You know, here is this bigger story and you should behave this way. You know, that's what the commandments are. That's what the rules of religions are. They're essentially going, behave in this way 
and you will serve the greater society because we're all aiming to you know, evolve to the next state or be reincarnated or whatever it is that you know, particular people believed. It feels like at the moment that we're really struggling with the bigger picture. You know, God is dead and nothing has replaced God sort of style. Like, how do you feel yeah. about that? Yeah, look, I'm really curious as to whether we have become a nation and a world of selfish dicks. Um, like, if, you know, if we take ourselves back to a World War II era, if, you know, if we're in the London Blitz, uh, uh, would we all, if we were in that sort of situation today, would we come together and act selflessly and, um, you know, turn off our lights to prevent the German bombers from being able to see us? Um, or would there be pockets of, you know, people leaving their lights on because the government's not going to tell you what to do? And, um, you know, it's, I'm not going to turn off my lights just because you might get bombed or, you know, I, I wonder whether that really has changed or whether it's um, just uh, a different circumstance. And my feeling is that we have become more selfish. I do feel like uh, there's, you know, to get really down into it, I mean, it's kind of like the thing at the root of capitalism, right? That you have this awesome economic system that is fantastic at uh, producing efficient goods and services. But the cost of it is that you start to value everything in economic terms. And so success is all about uh, what you can show in terms of numbers and you will be rewarded financially for for being successful successful within that system whereas you will not if what you're producing is less about numbers and, and figures and more about kindness and empathy so um yeah there is like this self-reinforcing thing where the people who succeed are the people who exemplify these selfish kind of traits and then they become role models for the next generation coming through and, and so on so yeah, I feel like that's that's a bit of an issue. Uh, and maybe I also wonder if like from a storytelling perspective, if the fact that we produce so many stories of um, heroes and, and not not superheroes, but a lot of stories are about, you know, some ordinary person and they become the, the celebrated. Yeah, it's like a you can be this person kind of story. Uh, and so maybe like, I think when I was when I was younger, I was thinking, okay, I am the hero in this movie and I am going to become a mega famous uh, best-selling author um, because I want it. Uh, and I, I understand from movies and books and TV that that's how this goes, that you just, you work and you rise up and you become mega successful. So yeah, maybe there is um, that sort of thought that has seeped into the culture after after this many years and we are all feeling like hang on i'm a bit ripped off because i'm supposed to be the hero here and yet i don't feel like i've been adequately recognized as such uh, i deserve more than i that i've gotten um so yeah that that is a concern it does feel like we've become and i you know like i mean it it's yelp reviews it's you know, rate and review this, it's stay on the call and tell us what your opinion is. We've been told constantly that what is most important is our opinion or our experience. And I think it goes to what you're saying about would people turn their lights off to, you know, hide from the bombs. You know, there'd be a few people going, no, I'm a sovereign citizen and I don't even believe there are bombs and I'm going to keep my lights on because we've been encouraged yeah. that your individual perspective is more important than like, you know, what, how it might affect other people. I think that is conditioned yeah. through the system and the society that we work in. And I think that there's no secret that those who were in the position to tell us these stories would tell us the stories. I mean, America who, you know, whatever you think of them 
as a superpower. They are still the cultural superpower of the world. You know, more American stories get told and stories get told through the American Hollywood prism than anywhere else in the world. So like they're, you know, like America sneezes, the world catches a cold, at least culturally, you know. And the fact that the American story is that anyone can be president, despite the fact that it's most likely to be that, you know, son of that really rich guy who lucked himself into being really rich, who ended up being president. The myth is we let Jeff Bezos have all that money because I could be Jeff Bezos. And and part of the reason that you believe you can be Jeff Bezos is because you are hearing all these stories about how you can be Jeff Bezos. Yeah. Yeah. I should say the London blitz analogy maybe isn't perfect because if you leave your lights on, then you get bombed. Yeah. Whereas to be a better <laughs> analogy, it should be you're turning someone else's lights on exactly. and you're fine. Yeah. 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 I'll turn my lights so, off. I just need to see where your house is. Yeah, that's right. Uh, all right. So <laughs> yeah, but- yeah, that, 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 that idea of, I guess, the the broader story of our society that encourages individualism. And I mean, in a very Western point of view, by the way, because obviously when you look at like, you know, rising superpower of like China, it's a completely different perspective and system that they're basing their, you know, society on. Yeah. Yeah. There's, um, yeah, there is a kind of um, individualism, obviously, that's become very prominent in the West. And um, a funny thing for me too, is about how we all you know view ourselves. So I feel like, there are some people in the world, um, there are a lot of people in the world who feel like um, what they need to do is get the most out of it for them and for their people. And that's how you succeed in life. And there are other people who will feel terrible about the slightest thing they might have done wrong that might have upset someone else. And um, there's such a, a huge spectrum um, between the two. I feel like we all sort of operate it in our own little bubbles and we don't recognize enough that there are other people feeling this entirely different way. Um, like sometimes if I'm thinking about, you know, I might be feeling like I've, I've messed up in some way, or maybe some person is offended at me, or if I'm getting too much inside my own head about something like that, I'll try to think about Vladimir Putin because obviously he's a terrible human being, right? But when he lies on his deathbed, there's no way that Putin is thinking, gosh, you know, I wish I'd been a kinder person during my life. You know, now he's going to be thinking, uh, I think I did pretty yeah, well. No, yeah, I did it. <laughs> uh, yeah, exactly. <laughs> He'll be thinking, my family's doing great. Yeah. You know, I was the most successful person who ever I had lived. a great time. So, I was like in charge of an entire country. I made millions of dollars. I rode my horse around without a shirt on. Like I, I played in ice hockey matches and scored eight goals against the champion players in the league. My life was awesome. <laughs> exactly. So as long as someone like that is out there, why should some of us be thinking, you know, feeling bad for what we've done when we are not on anything of the scale of Putin? So no, I'm not saying that, you know, everyone should be more like Putin. No. Right? Obviously, there's a if you're already on the Putin side of the average, you should be less Putin. Yeah. But um, for those of us who are way down at, at the other end, I think occasionally we can just let ourselves off the hook a little bit and feel like, you know, as long as nobody's, you know, as long as he's still around, then I shouldn't feel too bad. Yeah, as long as that, you go, what would Putin do? You've just got to think that. <laughs> that's right. Uh, what is it? I'm not sure if that's really coming off the way I no, intended, but you know, I, you know what I mean. I think people understand what you mean. I understand what you mean. I was just trying okay. to have some fun. So um, what aspect of another person's personality, maybe you just actually answered the question, but like, is there a personality trait 
that you wish you possessed or that you find like attractive in other people that you don't have yourself? Well, yeah, I guess there are lots. Um, I've got to say, I mean, this is, I hope this is not too embarrassing um, because I'm going to talk about you a bit now. But um, I, yeah, as someone who has known you for a really long time uh, and has seen the way that you have developed your career since you were a, um, a skinny teenager, uh, I find your, actually two aspects. I find your work ethic uh, and your relentless generosity to be really admirable. I think those are two traits uh, that um, I haven't really seen in other people or anyone else that I can think of as much as I have um, in you. And that's, uh, it's amazing. There are, there are so many people who would have been in a position to do what you've done, but they wouldn't have been as dedicated in terms of the work they put into it. Um, or they would have taken the temptation to uh, be a dick about it much more than, than you would have. Like you seem, you have pursued this sort of, um, this quest for self-improvement um, and not, and not just about yourself, but sort of led that for other people to, to take a window and look into what you're doing um, and to reflect on their own lives. Uh, and I feel like that is um, just so helpful to so many people. Uh, and uh, time and time again, I'll, I'll listen to you, you know, talking to someone and you will always take the, the most kind and most generous uh, response to that person, uh, which I think is, um, is wonderful. So yeah. Uh, those are those are a couple of aspects uh, that I think, yeah, all of us and, and me included could certainly learn from. So very nice of you to say. I appreciate that. I Well, I'm going to say something nice in return then, which is that I think that I'm not sure that I would have necessarily believed that I could do what I do without like what you did because you were a friend of mine from school who decided, no, 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 I'm going to do something different to what people tell me I should be doing with the skill set that I have and I found that incredibly inspirational you know like he's a guy that I went to school with and it's the same with you know Mark Howard Howie who you know was one of my great mates from school who's now like a super successful sports broadcaster you know internationally having this incredible career you know like it's I find it amazing because I remember us just sitting together you know at high school in the country and you know not being told that these things were imaginable for us so take me back to how did you imagine it how did you think you know when you're going to high school in you know twelve thousand people in sale that like you know that your life that you could do what you're doing with your life yeah well first can i just say i the howie podcast was so fun for me to listen to because it's essentially you and howie so two guys i knew from high school um, making jokes about things that happened in high school. Uh, so that was, it's like someone created a podcast specifically for me to enjoy. That was, that was so great. Um, and I love how he's, so, he's always such a positive kid in high school. Um, and I find that, especially as I get older, that that sort of positivity in people is so refreshing. Um, I just, I just love that. admire that. Um, yeah. In terms of, yeah, I guess, yeah. Over self-confidence is a big part of it as to why I decided that I could, just throw in my my real job uh, and become a writer. I it's the kind of thing where you know sometimes young people will ask for advice, like they have a dream uh, and they want to be some sort of artist, whether it's a writer or something else, and and they want advice on whether they should take risks to get there. And the sensible, practical thing is to say, well, look, you know, if you look at the numbers, a lot of people who try this never succeed, and, and so on, and. So there will never be a practical answer that tells you what you want to hear. 
Um, but the truth is, unless you take that leap um, and step off the cliff and try to walk on air for a little bit, then, then you don't make it. Um, even down to the fact that, you know, if you try to start a novel and you're thinking about the end when you begin, you'll never make it to the end of that novel. You've got to be looking at, at what you're doing. You've got to just, you know, take that leap without understanding how much work is behind it or else, or else it's too intimidating. So for me, I, um, I, I felt ridiculously overconfident in my own ability. Um, I, um, I remember it was a shock. I remember telling my dad that um, I was going to uh, quit my job at HP and try writing full time, even though I had never had anything published. And he uh, he was you know very concerned, and and he was talking about all the the medical benefits that I got from my my current employment, and uh, you know which yeah is probably easier to ignore as as a nineteen year old uh, than it would be as a twenty five or thirty year old. But the funny thing is, like I look back uh, on that time when I left my job, so I, I was. I think I was about 23, 24 when I, I quit my job. And it did feel really risky at the time. Like it was a measured risk, um, but it, was, it felt like I was giving up a lot. And all the people that I was working with at the time um, and who supposedly had these steady jobs in a big company and a mapped out future, I'm not sure if any of them are still there now. Uh, now it's, you know, it's all changed. People get fired all the time. The companies get reorganized. Uh, and so what used to be a fairly safe career job uh, is no more. And at this time in their lives where, you know, if you're 48, uh, like I am, uh, and you're feeling like, you know, you're kind of sick of your job, you kind of stuck like there's not a whole lot of places you can go if you're uh you know a specialized account manager and you want to change your job you've got to be really careful about making that step at this age um because you know, you're you're getting a bit old you're getting a bit past it whereas here i am i've been working for myself for for 20 years plus or 25 years and i get to control my own day, which is so important. I, I, I've become completely intolerant of not being able to control my own time anymore. Uh, and it's, you know, it's, it's rewarding in a lot of ways. I may be going occasionally a, a little bit um, stir crazy by, by not being around the other humans so much, uh, but the benefits are, are pretty huge. Um, it's tremendously rewarding to work on something creatively just because you're interested in it and just because it excites you. Uh, so I'm really grateful for that. Um, and yeah, I don't think I'd change any of that. Uh, I'm going to do all the standard questions because like, you know, in case people are listening for the first time, they can go back to the first episode and they can find out how many of these they actually asked. But uh, what do you think happens when we die? Okay. Um, I'm pretty sure I answered this the last time, you know, nothing. Um, I would like to add this time that I feel like this is like, realistically, we know the answer to this question. Yeah. Right? <laughs> <That> we. <laughs> As much as we know the answer to anything, we know the answer to that question. Yeah. Uh, and I have no problem with people who believe um, that something else happens when we die or believe, um, you know, in, in God or in some religious answer. Um, personally, I think that's wrong, um, but that's okay. Like, I think some wrong things too. Like, we all have a whole bunch of wrong beliefs. Um, the human brain is, is so vulnerable to... Um, uh, to making the wrong conclusions. I, the, you can prove that a million different ways from optical illusions to whatever. I think what you're saying right now is absolute fucking gold. I think this all the time. Like, 
I'm trying to be much more sort of empathetic in my, I've had a few friends who've gone full QAnon, you know, full conspiracy theory in the pandemic and, you know, really have been excluded for almost from almost all conversation because for those people who don't subscribe to that, it's just a conversation that you don't want to have with these people. But the more that you don't have it with them, the more they go into their own bubbles. They're only surrounded by people who are giving them more of this bad information. And I, I, a couple of these people I really like, and I'd like them to know that, if they get to a point where they suddenly feel like that isn't how the world is, that that there is a way back. You know, there's mm. somebody who's willing to talk to them about it and have a connection with them. And I've been trying to take into that conversation. There are plenty of things in the world. Remember, when you're having this conversation with this person, that you're not being patronizing. Like, you remember there are a whole bunch of things that you hold to be fundamentally true that are not really yes or that you only are because you believe that they are and and you know part of that was i was in a conversation with one of these people and i was like i instinctively know that what you're saying is not true like i bet if i could go away and google it i'd be able to find out but the way you're saying it is very compelling right and you've clearly done a lot more research on this topic than i have you know i am not equipped to be having this conversation with you at least on the level that you're having this conversation so i just anyway i wanted to identify that because the more that we realize when we're judging others for what they believe that we also believe a lot of bullshit things if yeah. we can start with the acknowledgement that there is a whole bunch of things that you believe to be very very important that are only very, very important because you believe them to be very, very important. Yeah, like I studied marketing at university. So I know that we all hold a lot of bullshit beliefs. Like marketing is the study of how to make people believe things that aren't really true. You're given a product and you have to convince people that they need it. Um, so yeah, it's, and that's been a, an interest of mine for a while, like how people are persuaded um, and the way that we can all hold such um, incredibly different beliefs about something and we're all completely convinced that that we're that we're right is is fascinating to me so yes the um the when we what happens after we die question um yeah i mean it's it's a settled question for me as as far as as you know we have settled questions in the world um but it's fine with me that people you know don't all see that and so therefore the next big question the reason i ask that what do you think happens when we die is really to get to the what do you think the whole point of life is and that's the harder question. I mean, what, like you said, I'm a bit like you in that I'm pretty certain that, you know, and most people who I have on have some version of, we go back to whatever we were before. Whatever that was, you go back to being that. And for a lot of people, that's just nothing. We were nothing and we will be nothing again. And I think certainly that's the worldview that I subscribe to that feels most right to me. Um but then the bigger question is, what's this bit in the middle of those two things? Between right. the darkness and the darkness, what the fuck is that all about? Do you have a sense of what the meaning of life is? I have a sense of how life is, um, which has been one of the most fascinating parts of becoming a parent, that you get to go through the first part of your life and you know, you're learning things, you're changing your opinions about things, you're sort of evolving as a person. And then you become a parent and you get to watch a replay of what just happened. Only this time you're in the parent role instead of the child role. Um, and you get to see how, how you are this sort of small particle that's in a system. And there were particles before you and there will be particles after you. And you're just sort of going through tracing a path. Um, and of course, you, can, you, can, you have a little bit of agency. You can wiggle around a little bit and, and you can move in unusual ways. But but you are part of a much 
greater cycle, um, which is, uh, I mean, people can interpret that in different ways. People can take a spiritual meaning from that um, and can sort of view it in terms of, of a grand force or a grand energy that, that binds us together. Um, or you can just sort of um, take it from an individual point of view and, and feel empathy towards the other particles and realize that um, you could be exactly where they are if things were slightly different. Uh, so yeah, for me, um, obviously, we all have to find meaning, we have to define our own lives, and we have to determine what our own lives mean. Um, that's, that's the choice that we each have to make. Um, and whether you are successful or not in your own life is, is up to you in terms of what you consider to be successful. So for me, um, uh, part of it, a big part of it is having kids, um, sort of, it's, it's hard to escape that, that I'm a biological creature. And that once these kids came along that um, I realized that I was going to dedicate a lot of the rest of my life to making sure that they had uh, a happy, safe upbringing, and that they were going to go out and go out into the world and, um, and do the best that they could. Um, and big part is, is my wife, Jen, who um, is sort of been with me for so long that I can't really uh, imagine what it would be like without her. Uh, and uh, writing novels is, you know, I sort of, I've done a lot of different things, but I keep coming back to the fact, like, I'll have a really good session with just me and the keyboard. And I'll finish that. And I'll be like, this is what I should be doing, like more than anything else, I'll, you know, programming, whatever is satisfying in different ways. But but if I've just written a scene and the characters have started to speak to me and, and it's all just worked the way it should, it, it is like nothing else. And I feel like I'm creating something that will be there. Um, yeah, it's its own thing. It will live on without me. I don't know how long these books stay in print after I'm dead, but you know, if it's, if it's still there in, in 10, 20 years, I think that is pretty cool that, that I have created this thing and um, that it gets to, to have its own existence without me. Um, that's that's really satisfying as well uh, so that's yeah that's a few different things all sort of bundled together but uh, yeah that's basically what I think so one of your daughters you know is 22 years old she's been working in some nice reliable job and she rings you up and she says dad I'm about to quit my job and go off and pursue whatever fanciful career it is that she particularly is interested in what's your response in that situation yeah, it's it, it's definitely to back her to do whatever she wants. Um, and yeah, she really loves animals. So she's totally into dogs at the moment. And that's the thing where when you have a, a three year old, and they say, you know, they love dogs and animals, and they want to um, be, grow up and, and do some work with animals, you're like, yeah, of course you do, because you're three. And um, I've been sort of waiting for the time where she would start to move on to something different. Um, and it hasn't happened. Um, she's you know, really passionate about dogs in particular. Uh, and so that's, that's a great thing. Like the thing that I think people are missing in their lives more than anything else is, is interest, is passion for something. If you have got uh, a genuine, if there's something in the world that interests you and excites you, then you should you know, cling to that because the worst thing is to be apathetic, to care about nothing and to just feel like, I don't want to do anything. I'll just uh, lie on the couch or, or you know, whatever. Um, to actually have an interest and in something that you connect with uh, is is so motivating uh, and always, as far as I'm concerned, uh, it, it just leads to great things. So, um, yeah, if she wants to be uh, work with dogs in some way, I don't know what that's going to be. I don't know if she will, um, you know, be a dog trainer, if she will run a dog related business, or, or what it will be. 
Um, but yeah, that's um, that's absolutely that's fantastic as far as I'm concerned. But it's also like in a very practical sense, a good way to look at the world. And I think one that we often overlook in the education system, which is that's a good career. Like there's dogs everywhere. <laughs> Everyone has dogs, like dog related careers absolutely exist. <laughs> like, you know, but like this is something that you can literally just identify and go, okay, like you might find your space in it. You might be a dog breeder. You might be a dog walker. It doesn't matter necessarily or you might, you might be a combination of those things. You might end up being a vet. Like, who knows what you're passionate... A dog photographer. Like, there's plenty of things that you can do. You can own a dog shop and sell the fanciest dog collars in town if that's the direction you want to go in. Like, yeah. there's so many... Yeah, big dog is, you know, a good industry <laughs> to sign yes. yourself up to, I think. You know? Yeah. You can still... I mean, you get outdoors during a pandemic. We have another pandemic. You're still allowed to walk dogs. Like, it's, you know, it's a future-proof career is what I'm saying. Yeah, I guess that's true. It's not quite as fanciful as, as writing novels when you put it like that. Um, so yeah. <laughs> yeah, but still, it was... You know, it's it's kind of a you try to imagine you know, when your kids yeah. are very small, you're sort of imagining these illustrious careers for them. So, um, yeah, it uh, it's it is funny watching them become their own people. And um, yeah, my my kids are a real joy to me, and and they're they're each doing their own thing and um, becoming a bit of a spectator to their lives is um, it's it's the sad part of being a parent is to start to move off to the side and watch them do their own thing, regardless of what you think. But you know, it's also what you're there for to, to make sure they're in a position to do that. Uh, okay. So um, if you could wake up tomorrow and you have any skill in the world, like interpret it however you want, you don't have to do your 10,000 hours. You just immediately have the capacity to perform this skill at, you know, a high level. What skill would you just love to have? Okay. Which, which skill would I like to have? Um, so these are the first, these are the questions you ask the people who do the podcast the first time, aren't they? Like these are, these are not the second, the part two questions that you ask people who come back to the podcast. Oh, no, a bit of both. Like, I mean... Oh, a bit of both. Yeah. Okay. Because there's one that, that I was very curious about, similar to this question. Yeah. It's the what you would do if you could not fail. Oh, I'm question. getting to that. That's so basically... Oh, you, that's coming? Yeah, we ramp, okay. so we ramp up. Right. Like we ramp up in order, basically. So I've given you a mixture. Right, because I have questions about that question. Yeah. <laughs> okay. So that's next, if I, if and I, then there's time okay. travel. We're almost there, but this is like third to last <laughs> in my okay, structure okay. as I tend to wrap this up. So you wake up with any skill in the world, like, like what skill? Wake up it? with any skill in the yep. world. Uh, you know, I, I would like to be able to play netball properly without elbowing women in the mm -hmm. mouth. I think that would be that would be a good skill to have. Okay. Um, I really admire that sport, um, and yet I can't really participate it participate in it. So um yeah i think i would go with that one at the moment okay good all right uh max barry on my desk i have something that's as close to an inspirational saying as i have it's a little piece of metal and inscribed in it and it says what would you attempt if you knew you could not fail for me what that means okay. is like i'm guaranteed of success in a project what do i want that project to look like that's what my interpretation is but i hear you have thoughts on this question yeah i do so um i started to think about it it became a more interesting question the more i thought about it so my first question is do i have to work at it am i like instantly going to succeed or do i need to do like the normal amount of work that would be required to succeed at that thing uh, uh look i mean i'm happy for you to interpret it in whichever way you want for me, mm -hmm. I always think of it as like, yes, you're still working at it. So, so say it was like, yeah. a, just to use an example, say it was like a 
television show or a Broadway run. Let's say a Broadway run of a stand-up show because that's just something outside, you know, something that I would do. But like, I'm like, I want to do a year on Broadway doing my one-man show, right? I want to do that year. I want to live in New York. I want to be going to the theater every night. But yep. I just know that it's going to sell out and it's going to go very well. But I still want to do it. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, gotcha. All right. My second question, can I do impossible things? Like, can I race Usain Bolt and win? Yep. Yeah. Well, not, oh, no, that's okay. not impossible. I mean, it's impossible. Like, you're guaranteed of success in this scenario. So I guess it's not impossible. Okay. All right. But also, All like, right. I, well, mean, you, I mean, you said, would it be possible for you to race Usain Bolt and win? You didn't say at the Olympics or at his best. Like, it might be about us right. not being Usain Bolt <laughs> as opposed to uh, okay. you getting, you know. Well, they're starting to feel like there's a bit of a genie in the bottle factor where the genie is like deliberately interpreting your question in some way where it comes back to bite it you. It might be butt. you and Usain Bolt lining up for a race and me with like a sledgehammer, you know, driving it into yeah. his knee at yeah. the starting block. Yeah. Okay. Oh, look, I found that that's interesting because I thought the most interesting version of this question is the one where you do have to work yeah. at it, like you said, like the Broadway run. Um and in that situation, what the question is really saying is, what is fear of failure holding you back from? Yep. So I thought about that because if I, what is the thing that I would like to be able to do? And I could do it if I was willing to put in the work. And the only reason that I haven't done it is I'm, I'm, I have a fear of failure. Uh, and I thought for me, you know, it is probably <laughs> as, as weird as it may sound, it, it was probably writing a novel because I do that already, but I would really love to do that without having to worry at all about what people might think about it. Like I try very hard to do that already, but I'm not entirely successful at it. And I think it becomes more difficult as I get older, where uh, in my youth, I would like charge into a book and uh, no one had ever heard of me. So I had absolutely nothing to lose. Um, who knew if anyone was going to read it at all? Whereas now I have, you know, I know that there will be people who will pick yeah. up the book and be like, well, this isn't as good as as the yeah. the earlier book or you know i think every book i've written someone has told me that you know it's very different to your previous stuff um so i'm kind of used to that the very different thing but yeah i would like to be able to write a novel with absolutely zero concern uh about how it may be received or whether it will do well or not yeah i think i've never done that with stand-up either i don't think i've ever truly written something 100 percent without a concern about how it would be perceived i mean in fact mm. i often joke that come and see the show on the first night because it's the only night you see what i thought the show would be after that it is right. you know changed by the audience and the audience what expectations yes. of it so the very nature of the process means that it becomes you know something that i'm taking other external feedback but the first night you get yes. to see what yep. i thought the show was and it turns out often i'm very wrong so <laughs> I have a time machine. Um, it can take you to any point in history, any point in the future. It's a re return trip. That's all I need. I need the time machine back for future hypothetical uh, examples on uh, future podcasts. But uh, future or past, where do you want to go? Do you want to change something, observe something? What do you want to do? Mm, I've had time to think about this question too. I thought the end. I would like to see the end mm -hmm. of the human race because it's... Um, yeah, I'd like to see how it wraps up, basically. Well, Whether it's you, you might know, get to a, anyway a at good... the rate we're going, Max. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. I don't. I don't mean this in like a 
uh, a catastrophic sense. Like, you know, all things end, right? right? At some point, the human race will either end or maybe we'll transform, we'll become um, transhuman and become something right. different. But uh, I would like to have a look at the last page of that book and just sort of see you know, where it ended up, because that provides context to everything else, yeah. you know? And so, yeah, I'd like to see the end. Yeah, we don't know if this makes sense until we see how it ends. Yeah. Well, Max, it was... Now, before you finish, yes. Will, can I can I ask you, I have a few questions that I like oh. to ask at the end of podcasts that I do. So these are just a few questions I like to ask uh, when we're wrapping up. Yeah, okay, so, good, good. If you could stay on the call, if you could stay on the podcast and answer a few questions after it's done. Yes, for our satisfaction. Um. When you retire, Will, will your final show be called Last Will and Testament? Certainly, that is the one that I have prepared. So um, I imagine that I'm going to get some sort of illness, hopefully, ideally for show titles. So I think I've already done Critically Will, but I could definitely do Terminally Will. And then I think Last Will and Testament is definitely... Um, and there might even be another one that I put, like I certainly have put some of the show titles in order and there's a few dark ones towards the end. <laughs> How long is the list of possible Will-related puns uh, in, in shows at this point? Because you must have built up quite a, a More than I point. have um, time left to do shows is, is what I would mm. actually say. So I'm on my computer right now. Let me have a little look at uh, my little folder here that I have called Show Names. Uh, here we go. You can tell me what you like out of this. Um, okay. Uh, bitter Will to Swallow. Uh, chronically Will. Chronic Willness, Everything Will Be Fine, For Good or For Will, Fuck Marry Will, Girls Gone Will, Gravely Will, oh, Gravely Will, that'd be good for Heads Will Roll, Heartbreak Will, If Looks Could Will, Impose Your Will, Iron Will, I Will, I Will Survive, Last Will and Testament, Love Will, Tear Us Apart, Mentally Will, probably not, you probably can't do that one anymore, Not Guilty, yeah. <laughs> Optical Will Illusion, <laughs> Private Members Will, <laughs> Say you will, shoot to will, ventrill will, will uh, will ante, when will I be famous? Where there's a will, will them all, will fair, will judged, say what you will, mystery wilderness. Oh, that'd be good. Mystery wilderness. That'd be good for the end days. Divine will, will intent, a time to will, moral will emma, will literate, will logical, battle of the wills, test of will. Oh, anyway, there's a lot. Will a buster. Yeah. There's will illuminate. There's, there's a lot. There basically, there is, uh, I think there's like about 50 on my list, 50 or 60 right. on my list. And I certainly right. do not have that many shows left in me. Oh, thank you. Yeah, it's nice to get a list of, of all those ones. Uh, if you get hit by a bus tomorrow, at least we're not robbed of these potential will titles. I was show. thinking this recently. I'll ask you this question because I recently had a near-death experience. I'm absolutely fine. Nothing wrong with me. But uh, a tree branch fell on my car, uh, like a heavy tree branch fell on my car on a deserted back road. And like 10 centimeters the other way could have been probably a really horrible situation wow. turns out 10 centimeters it wasn't the other way and i'm absolutely fine apart from the crushed windscreen of the car so it did make me think though i've got a lot of you know first chapters on my computer at the moment you know a lot of just started projects that aren't really necessarily anything yet and i think that what i want is a i think i need to compile a little delete upon death file like there's some stuff that I'd be happy for people to go to the computer and find. And there's some stuff that at the moment is just for me. And I really don't want people going through and going, what does he mean by this? Well, this is a weird thing to think was going to be a project. Wow. Well, just for them personally, or you feel they may like publish them as the, you know, the, the hidden unpublished memoirs of Will and then it would become public. I imagine there'd be enough stuff in there to at least 
like wring a little bit more cash out of me after my death. Right, <laughs> yeah, like, right. There's some things that are close enough, you know. <laughs> yeah, I'm kind of the other way. I get a fear if I, I'm working on a book and it's going really well and I feel like, like I, I figured out how the rest of the book will go, but I'm maybe 67% of the way through. Uh, I feel like, gee, I would really hate to die right now and not finish this book. Mm. I feel like this, you know, I'd be ripped off if that happened. All right, next question for you. Have you ever sat across from someone uh, while doing one of these philosophies and just been thinking, this person has a terrible ideology and is that person me? Uh, well, I'll answer the second part first. No. Um, and I think the first part is also no. Nothing springs to mind. Like there are people that I certainly, you know, that my perspective, I think... There's no one that I would say I 100% agree with is probably the better way to answer it. I don't think I've done a single episode of the nearly 250 of these that we've done where I would have said that person, you know, everything that they think about the world is also what I think about the world. And which, to be honest, was the whole point of the show in the first place. The one thing, the one idea I had coming into this show when I first started it was, I think if I talk to, we so often hear about like, you know, inner city latte sippers or people being categorized as you're all one type of people and you all have the same perspective on something. And I just inherently believed that that was 100% untrue. And that even if people who believed in big things that were the same would like fill in a lot of the other things with yeah very different priorities. And if I just asked people about what they were passionate about and what their priorities were, what it would reveal is Look at all these people. Because at the start, the show was just people I knew. So the idea was, here are all the people I know and none of them believe exactly the same thing. And I think that's the important lesson of the podcast. To me, that is always been at the heart of it. Listen to all these people and they all think some things the same and a whole bunch of things completely different. That's kind of the point of the show, I think. That's terrific. I think that's a great way to finish, Will. Uh, thanks for coming in. <laughs> it's been Will Anderson, Philosophy. Uh, Max Murray has a new book. It's called The 22 Murders of Madison May. You should buy that. And, of course, uh, your previous book was called, oh, now I'm going to get the name wrong. It was a one-word name, Leviathan? No. Oh, so close. Providence. Providence, that's right. Yeah, I knew. Yes. I was like, no, yeah, it's a... Um, well, I wasn't going to say Providence though. I was going to say something that Prometheus, that's what I was going to say. And I knew that was right. not right. I knew that was an alien movie. Um, yeah, big spaceship, pretty yeah, close. A spaceship movie. It's uh, a it spaceship is. book. Sorry. It's also excellent. Um, I read that at the start of the pandemic. You've started the pandemic and the end of the pandemic, two new books from Max Barry. And uh, you told me before that you've completed another couple of projects, which means that obviously there might be some other stuff for people to see in the near future. I'm imagining. Yes. Yes. With luck. Yeah. All right. Thank you very much for doing this, Max. Thanks, Will.